right, stop the recording. So I think that's going to be about an Andrew. Welcome to the Protagonist Podcast. I'm Todd Mack here with Joseph Dorowski, and each week we look at a great character and a great story. Today we're talking about George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life. The film was directed by Frank Capra based on a short story by Philip Van Doren Stern. It was released in 1946 and starred Jimmy Stewart. Listeners, you may be surprised to see one more Christmas discussion, and this is actually brought to you by a patron. So we were ready to uh, jump on to some other topics, but a patron made a last-minute request for one more Christmas discussion for us to cover It's a Wonderful Life. So here we are. So thank you to... Jane. Listener Jane, who also Listener happens Jane. to be my mother. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you, Jane. This and... one's for you, Mama. <laughs> Some trivia about It's a Wonderful Life. It has a 94% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. And while it wasn't an outright flop, which sometimes, if you discuss film history, you may hear that this one flopped when it came out. It was an outright flop, but it was definitely a disappointment when it was released. It didn't break even on its budget. Uh, but I cannot then, fathom that. <laughs> it, it made up for it. This was one that was a long-term investment. You may get this, the- was, this wasn't about the opening weekend. <laughs> You may get the sense by the time that this uh, film is, by the, the, this podcast is over, that uh, my mother is not the only Mac who really, <laughs> really loves this film. Oh, well, it it, it uh, has a long history of being loved, so <laughs> you're not alone. It was nominated for five Academy Awards, including Best Picture, though it only won a technical award for developing new special effects to simulate snow because it was filmed during a heat wave. <laughs> <laughs> and the uh, the original, or, or up to that point, the fake snow that they used was actually cornflakes that they painted white, and they, the crunching sound meant that everything had to be dubbed over audio-wise later, <laughs> and Frank Capra didn't want to have to deal with that. So, so what did uh, they use? Uh, it was a mix of... Some uh, water and some chemicals and some foam, I think, and some soap was in there. It was just a new chemical mixture that was used. Cornflakes, and, like breakfast cereal cornflakes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which I, I still remember uh, hearing about when they were making the White Thing movie in the 90s that they ran into a lot of trouble because at that point they were using potato flakes as the fake snow and the dogs kept stopping to eat it. <laughs> so there's a long history of food stuff you being used to snow causing my problems do- in Hollywood. My dog would not uh, would not do very well if it was made of cornflakes. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. In 1998, the film was ranked as the 11th best American film ever made by the American Film Institute. And AFY also ranked it as the number one most inspirational film ever made and ranked Mr. Potter as the number six villain and George Bailey as the number nine hero in various other lists that AFI... For a while there, AFI was really big into doing their rankings. Yeah. <laughs> that feels uh that all feels closer to uh what I would where I would rank this instead of being a box office flop. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what was wrong with people in 1946. <laughs> um there were some insane copyright issues that have plagued this film in that in the 70s, I want to say it was. I mean, I read through this a little bit ago, and I was kind of aware of it. In the 70s, the rights to the film uh, kind of lapsed the company that had those rights, and that's when it started to be aired on television all the time. And there were actually multiple, like in the 80s, there were multiple VHS releases that were done. But then later on, the film company proved they still had the rights to the original story that it was based on, and therefore It's a Wonderful Life was a derivative work of something they had the rights to, and it all kind of, the genie got put back in the bottle, <laughs> and lots of monies were repaid. 
made. Um, but it, this is one of the examples of really complex copyright law, um, and a lot of litigation was done around this film. <laughs> Seems kind of sad. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and this was an interesting one to me. This was one of the very first films released on a CD-ROM video. Todd, are you familiar with CD-ROM video? No. <laughs> it was a predecessor to DVD. Uh, this was in the early 90s and actually had the world record for the longest continuously played video on a computer in the 90s, in the early 90s. Because up until that release of that CD-ROM video, the longest video that had been played was 30 minutes long. Wow. Yeah, so it's not the only technological innovation was not snow. It also helped you really, with video playing on the computer. You really dug deep on this uh, trivia <laughs> section here. Oh, there's there's a better one coming. Okay. Uh, there's one I'm really excited for. Uh, but some other random trivia in 1977, a made-for-TV movie version was produced that gender-swapped most of the roles, but one role that was not gender-swapped was Mr. Potter, who was played by Orson Welles. Wow. <laughs> in 1977. Uh <laughs> Other bits of trivia before I get to the big one. There's one I'm really excited about. Uh, RKO bought the rights to a short story that became... This is what the short story became, It's a Wonderful Life. But that, that short story first appeared on a Christmas card in 200 words. Wow. <laughs> um, and RKO intended the film or the short story or the film they were going to make out of that short story to be, to be a starring vehicle for Cary Grant. But they never got it made and they sold the rights as well as three different scripts that they'd commissioned to Frank Capra who got it made as It's a Wonderful Life. You know, normally I uh, I would think, oh, I just can't even imagine this. But man, Cary Grant, I think he I think he would have done a fine job. Oh yeah, um, so I watched a little behind the scenes like making of, and the person who was narrating it like said, "Can you imagine any other cast for this?" And he started to list some of the other um, characters or actors that had been up for some of the roles. Mm-hmm. And, like, for Mr. Mr. Uh, Potter, he mentioned Vincent Price, and all of a sudden I was like, I could see Vincent <laughs> Price playing Mr. Potter just yeah. fine. But he's acting as though all of these were outlandish to even imagine. I think my wife would like this movie better if Cary Grant were in the <laughs> lead role. She kind of has a thing for Cary Grant. Um, oh, so a couple of random things about the production. Uh, Which you can prank- totally understand if you know me. Like, <laughs> yes, you're... you're- <laughs> You and Cary Grant are doppelgangers. Essentially, yeah. <laughs> yeah could be easily be mistaken for each other. <laughs> <Yeah>, totally. <laughs> um, in the film, there's a prankster who opens up a gym floor, uh, this mechanical gym floor that reveals a pool underneath of it. Uh, and that prankster was played by the same actor who had played Alfalva in our gang. <gasps> and <laughs> You gotta see that. Uh, I have, I have a, be- a piece of trivia about the gym floor. Yes. My mother it's- danced on that gym floor. It's still in use. Yes. With a pool underneath it. Yeah. In uh, what, what high school is it? It's a high school gym floor. It's in uh, Beverly Hills, I think. Yeah, in that uh, making of, they said that a lot of film critics uh, made specific mention of how outlandish it was to imagine a gym floor that had a pool underneath it and thought that was just Hollywood making up randomness, but <laughs> they filmed it on location. <laughs> yeah. Um. Let's see, there's a scene in the film where the drunk uncle like leaves and all of a sudden you hear all this crashing and it's he yells, I'm all right. Favorite. All right. One of my most favorite scenes. I'm all right. I'm all right. I've quoted that lots of times. That was an ad lib that happened because the drunk uncle, the actor playing him, walked off and a uh, a technician that was on set bumped a cart full of <laughs> some <laughs> equipment that made a really loud clattering sound. And the actor playing the drunk uncle just ad libbed in the, I'm all right. And they kept it. Wow. Uh, it said the person, uh, the, the worker that bumped the cart thought he was going to get fired. And instead he was given a bonus. <laughs> Wow. 
Another random bit about the film, uh, there's a scene where there's a run on his uh, loan company and he's having to give money to the people. Mm -hmm. And there's the lady who said, like, people have been asking for $200 and Mm -hmm. then a bunch of people ask for $20 and one lady says, I just need $17.50. And he gives her a kiss on the cheek. That line was ad-libbed. The director told her to just make up a line that she thought would get a good reaction from Jimmy Stewart. Wow. (laughs) And then uh, last bit of trivia before I get to my favorite one. Uh, This is Capra's favorite film. I mean, he made a lot of films, but he said this is his very favorite and he thinks it best encapsulates the themes that he often tried to explore, particularly about the importance of the individual and that everyone has a purpose in life. Hmm. I don't know if you caught that about this film, Todd. Well, actually... um... (laughs) I want to come back to this, uh, this idea of the importance of the individual. I have some thoughts about that. Okay. But then this is my favorite bit of trivia that sent me down a rabbit hole that I was not expecting. <laughs> uh, so in that documentary, they made a couple mentions to the fact that Jimmy Stewart was a little nervous being back on camera because they hadn't been on camera for a few years. I was like, what? <laughs> Jimmy Stewart wasn't on camera? And so I went and looked up his filmography, and there was like a five-year gap from 40 to 45 when this was really? released, re- released. And I was like, why? And then I, it clicked. I was like, oh, he must have been doing USO stuff. It was during World War II. Uh-huh. He, he must have, uh, you know, a lot of Hollywood actors ended up doing like promotional things for buying war bonds or doing tours to help troop morale. They were doing uh, the, White Christ- the White Christmas thing. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but no, that is not what he was doing. So he was actually drafted into the military, but rejected because he was underweight, <laughs> which wow. I know Jimmy Stewart, you're shocked. It's shocking. Uh, <laughs> and he went to, uh, a trainer for the film company that he was under contract with to put on pounds. And once he had, uh, gained some weight, he enlisted, wow. uh, in, in the military and he, uh, enlisted in the air force cause he was a trained pilot with over 400 hours of flight. <laughs> And they kept uh, trying to keep him behind the lines or some training roles. And he kept saying, no, I, I want to participate. And he led several dozen bombing raids over Germany. Wow. <laughs> like, he was, he was a commander. So he was in charge of the entire uh, group. And, no way. Uh, yes. And actually, he ended his military career with the rank of brigadier general. <laughs> yeah. So you respected, amazing. you respected Jimmy Stewart before <laughs> as an American treasure, but now I hope wow. you respect him even more. I went down this big rabbit hole about his military career, um, and he kept also insisting like throughout his life that he not be treated as anything special for his military career. And like he would do things for the military, but never wanted it to be about Jimmy Stewart doing it. He wanted it to be about the military. Wow. So... Mad props to you, <laughs> Jimmy Stewart. Yeah. I did not know that facet of your life. Wow. And so this was his first film back from participating in World War II. Oh, that's really interesting. I'm just trying to wrap my brain around this. <laughs> it's like, that's a, that's a movie. Yes. Yeah. Like, how? well, how do we not know this about Jimmy Stewart? <laughs> I know <laughs> is is what I came away with, um, and like, how did some obscure references to the him being uh, feeling a little rusty in front of the camera is what led me to discovering this about him? Like that should be the leading line, yeah. of, of Jimmy Stewart discussions. Wow, I mean, I'm uh, yeah. So, listeners, I invite <laughs> to you say. to go do a little reading about Jimmy Stewart's role in the military. <laughs> You're going to come away very impressed. Wow, cool. Yeah, I, I that I. If it were possible to like Jimmy Stewart anymore. <laughs> that that right there just did it? Yeah. That's amazing. Okay. Uh, do you remember the first time that you saw It's a Wonderful Life? No, I kind of remember it being on when I was a kid, but never really wanting to watch it that much. Oh, man. Um, and You were too also- busy watching Big Bird and <laughs> Claymation. <laughs> 
Well, stop you motion, know, stop as, as a kid, I don't know how much the ins and outs of bank finance <laughs> were going to entice me into uh, sticking with the film. Nah, I was born older. I, I've always loved this film. But uh, it's one of those like unto A Christmas Carol that has been spoofed or borrowed for so many different productions that even if you've never seen A Wonderful, It's a Wonderful Life, which I am always surprised how many people I find out haven't seen it. Go fix your lives, people, and watch It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> if you're one of those who's just kind of aware of it because it's been redone for every sitcom or even children's cartoons they, or you know the Muppets have done a version of it. Uh, so you can be aware of it if you've never actually sat down and paid attention you know, to it. Uh, or even if you're just aware of it because of its references in Home Below. I mean, it gets referenced all the time. Yeah. But uh, you should sit down and watch this film. And, yeah, by Fix by fix Your Life, we mean go watch what, <laughs> what, was, what has been rated the number one most inspirational movie of all time. It's yeah, so I, good. <laughs> it's weird of me to say Fix Your Life when I'm the one that's always arguing. You can like what you like and don't like what you don't like. But yeah. this is one that at least <laughs> should – the actual film and not just the cultural idea of the film should be consumed by everyone at some point. And, and how does – if, if it's not, if it's not ninety four percent rating on <laughs> Rotten Tomatoes, <laughs> there's uh, a few curmudgeons out there. Man, I mean, you can watch it and maybe you don't like it, and that's fine. But don't just dismiss it because it's an old black and white film and it doesn't sound like it's something you'd be interested in. It's really good. Our producer Andrew has something to add. My primary exposure was through Tiny Toons. They did a an homage, you could say, generously. <laughs> Yeah, I, d- I did a deep dive into trying to figure out the homages that have been done to A Christmas Carol. I did not try and do that for It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> um, I'm guessing it's a similar number. Yeah. Ooh, it's good. But Todd, good, good. so you've, since childhood, have enjoyed this film? Yeah, I've seen this many, 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 many times. I would say it was probably like it. early adolescence I actually sat down to pay attention to it. And mm-hmm. I enjoyed it. I liked it. No, this one, this, 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 and uh, White Christmas are the two films that I that are my like earliest memories of Christmas films. See, oddly, White Christmas though I always connected with. White Christmas was always great. Yeah. Um, and Frank Capra. I mean, okay, Jimmy Stewart, Frank Capra, great combination. A number <laughs> of other collaborations that they had done together. Uh, but if you study film, like you're going to come across both those names quite a bit. <laughs> And it's uh, kind of unavoidable to do some film history without becoming familiar with the term Capra-esque and not uh, exploring some of the career of Jimmy Stewart. All right. Well, uh, if any of you are not familiar with this film, it's the story of a man named George Bailey. And as the film begins, we hear people praying for him. And we get the impression that he's in a lot of trouble. And then uh, Joseph, who is an angel... Uh, is talking with God? Is it God that he's talking to? Probably. It's an unnamed <laughs> entity that's in charge of all the angels. It's in charge of the angels. Uh, so um, they're discussing how to help this man. Let's just, um, if you haven't seen it, this discussion takes place uh, with a shot of the night sky. And as people are, as these voices are going, certain stars glow more. Yes. So th- <laughs> kind so of being- glowing stars. And uh, they're talking to each other. It made me think a little bit about in uh, Avengers Age of Ultron, when Ultron and Jarvis have a conversation as two computer programs that oh, kind yeah. of spi- spike up in color as their their voices are going. Yeah, yeah, I get that. Okay. So they're talking to each other. They pull in this, uh, this new angel. His name is Clarence. And they tell Clarence um, that he's going to need to help George Bailey. So they're going to recap George's life to kind of get him up to speed 
to the point where he is now, where he needs this help. This is his big, this is George Bailey's big night, and Clarence needs to understand who George is uh, in order to help him. And uh, so, anyway, I don't know if that's like the greatest setup in the world for this (laughs) film, Um, but if that sounds interesting to you, then you should pause this and go and watch It's a Wonderful Life. At this point... uh, because the rights have been sorted out to a much greater degree, I believe NBC owns the exclusive rights. Like, if you grew up in the 80s, this was on every single day during the Christmas season <laughs> on, on random TV stations. Because, again, for a while it was thought to be in public domain, even though later on they decided it wasn't. Uh, but now NBC, I think, airs it twice every Christmas season, once early in December and once on Christmas Eve. Yeah. Um, and, but but it's got several DVD releases, a lot of VHS releases. Yeah, we'll so. have links in show notes to where you can get it. So go ahead and uh, pick it up and watch it. You'll enjoy it. I recommend it. Todd, before we get into the more detailed synopsis, do you have any thoughts for our listeners? I do have some thoughts for our listeners. This is a special, special time of year when, uh, when our thoughts turn towards gratitude and giving. And we would like to invite you to show your gratitude by giving. <laughs> uh by giving is, some money, <laughs> some money to us. <laughs> this is the opposite of the message I give my children about Christmas. <laughs> Christmas is all about asking people for money. Now, um, we have been uh, blessed recently with some new patrons on Patreon, and we'd like to thank them and uh, and invite any of the rest of you who have. I I dare say that the thought has crossed your mind if you're listening to this. You know what? Those guys are doing a heck of a job with their podcast. I think I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna do that Patreon thing, and then it slips your mind, and and life catches up with you, and and uh, and you forget to do it. And uh, now is our again invitation to you to uh, get on your computer and go to Patreon.com/slash/protagonist, or you can go to ProtagonistPodcast.com and click on the support link. Or you can click on the link right in our show notes, and it will take you to the Patreon page. It's easy peasy lemon squeezy, and uh, you can donate a little bit of money to us each month, and it goes a long, long way. So thanks to all of you who are supporting us, and here's an invitation to those of you who uh, and still it, hope to do so. If a financial donation seems like something, you know, a step too far, we still appreciate any ratings particularly positive ones that you can give us on iTunes <laughs> or just sharing uh, the message of the protagonist podcast on social media, telling your friends about it. Uh, any way that more people find out about us and are willing to give us a try uh, that helps us out. I think it's delightful. This is maybe going on a little bit longer than, than uh, we had anticipated, but it's totally delightful for me when, um, I mean, we just started, we're just a couple of guys who are interested in, you know, doing this thing. And, uh, and when we started, most of the people, uh, i.e. all of the people listening to this, <laughs> were like our friends and family. Um, but man, it is so awesome to get uh, a note from somebody on Facebook or on the webpage saying, hey, uh, I really like what you guys are doing. And I assume that it's one of Joe's friends. And I say, hey, do you know this person? And he says, no, I, don't, I have no idea who this person is. And it just like warms my little heart. I love that. So yeah. Um, we're growing like little by little each week we're growing and that's awesome. So thank you all for listening. 
Yes, thank you very much. And now we will move on to the full synopsis. So if you need to pause this and go watch It's a Wonderful Life for the first time in your life, you may do so now. Otherwise, if you just want to hear the synopsis, here we go. On Christmas Eve, a series of prayers for a troubled man named George Bailey reach heaven, where an angel named Clarence is assigned to help. Clarence is a second-class angel who has yet to earn his wings. In order to prepare Clarence to help George, a recap of George Bailey's life is provided. We begin at age 12, where George saves his brother's life after he falls through a crack in ice and is in danger of drowning. In doing so, George loses the hearing in his left ear. Shortly thereafter, George stops his employer, a pharmacist, from accidentally poisoning a customer when his employer puts rat poison into pills because he is so distracted by the sudden death of his son and he's grieving and doesn't quite follow what he's doing so by age 12 george has saved two lives uh cut to several years later as his younger brother's graduating high school george has plans to leave bedford falls that's a small town where he lives uh and he wants to travel the world and go to college he attends his younger brother's graduation party where he enjoys the company of a young woman named mary with whom he participates in a charleston dance contest until a prankster opens up the gym floor revealing a pool underneath into which george and mary fall but then continue dancing anyway (laughs) (laughs) during a rather flirtatious walk home george is interrupted and told that his father's had a stroke and he has to run home george's father passes away and the only way to prevent his family's loan business from falling into the hands of the scrooge like mr potter is if george will postpone his travels and college and run the family business George gives his savings to Harry, that's his younger brother, so that Harry can attend college, with the understanding that Harry will take over the business and then George will go to college. But when Harry returns from college, he has a new wife and a father-in-law who wants Harry to work for him. Harry says he won't leave George in the lurch, but it's such a good offer that George insists that Harry take this other job and George will remain in Bedford Falls running the family business. Uh, However, staying in Bedford Falls, George reunites with Mary, who has just graduated from college, and they soon marry. George works hard to ensure that affordable loans are available from a source other than the money gouging Mr. Potter. And during World War II, George cannot serve because of his deaf ear, but he does his best to help the war effort. His brother Harry is a war hero, uh, saving a troop transport and is awarded a Congressional Medal of Honor. Uh, George's absent-minded Uncle Billy loses $8,000 of the loan company's money. Uh, and that money is found by Mr. Potter, who now hopes that the Bailey uh, building and loan business is going to go out of business. This is, unfortunately, uh, the same day that a bank inspector wants to look at the building and loan books, <laughs> and a panicked and fearful <laughs> George Bailey returns home, where he berates his wife and children, and then goes and gets a bit drunk, realizing that his life insurance money may be the only way to help his family's suddenly desperate financial situation. He goes to a bridge, where he considers jumping in. You may have forgotten about the angels at the very beginning of the film, but Clarence now appears, and he jumps into the river, trusting that George Bailey will rescue him instead of committing suicide. Clarence is correct, and George saves him, but then tells Clarence uh, that he wishes he had died, or better yet, had just never been born. Clarence grants this wish, and George sees how the world is different without him ever having been in it. Bedford Falls is now Potterville. His former employer spent 20 years in jail for poisoning a child. His brother Harry died in a childhood accident, and therefore all the troops on that troop transport died. His uncle Billy was institutionalized after a market crash. And Mary is a spinster librarian. What? <laughs> this last point is too Worst. much for George. <laughs> Worst fate ever. <laughs> and George begs for his life to be returned to him. He wants to live. Suddenly, he's back in his original timeline, and he runs home to his wife and children, ready to face jail time for having lost $8,000 of his company's money. But all the townspeople he has helped his whole life now come through for him. Hearing that he's in trouble, people line up to offer him whatever cash they have, 
and you know, old high school friend even calls in offering a $25,000 loan. While everyone sings Christmas carols, George's daughter points to a bell on their Christmas tree that is ringing and says, teacher says every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings. Aww. This warms my heart. So, that is It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> and we already kind of chuckled about it, but uh-huh. I don't think it ever stood out to me quite so much that the true horror isn't all the troops dying on a troop transport. <laughs> <laughs> isn't someone spending 20 years in jail for accidentally killing a child. It is Mary being a spinster librarian. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I had that thought as well. Like, like, Mary, you still matter. You are a good individual, even if you're not married to George Bailey. <laughs> Uh, his angry mother <laughs> his institutionalized uncle yeah it was it was a rough world and it's a rough uh, world without george bailey yeah a lot of influence in one man one man's life okay so where do we go from here um shall we uh just start with jimmy stewart's performance a couple points about it sure i want to raise um I think when he is depressed at the end and he's considering suicide and he's gotten a little bit drunk, mm-hmm. I think this might be the kind of starting point for where he ends up in some Hitchcock films. Okay. Uh, the, the kind of darker side, the more mm-hmm. broken man. Uh, I, I don't know that we he had that reputation in his earlier films. I, I thought that this that his performance in this film was really, really good. Oh, yeah. I think it's great. Though I do have to say, I struggle a bit with him playing the recent high school graduate. <laughs> What's like, a, he, he's playing young, but he can't quite play that young. <laughs> even uh, well, hmm. let's see. When is it? When is it that he's a recent high school graduate? It's, well, it's right when we see him, and he's and he's getting his suitcase. Yeah, and then he he dances with Mary. He's supposed to be a few years out of high school. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, I mean, he's a World War II veteran at this point. He doesn't quite look like he's just a couple years out of high school. Yeah. Um, I think when I was a kid, I thought he was supposed to be in high school. Like, I wasn't following all the plots <laughs> as well, and it, it bugged me then, and maybe that's why it still stands out to me now. Yeah. That, that doesn't that doesn't bother me. I, but I, I think um... he does a great job. Like you said, his performance is really good from the, uh, you know, the the hope uh, the hopeful scenes, the frustrated scenes, the the suicidal scene, um, and then like his lack of understanding about the new world after his wish gets granted. granted. Yeah, I think he's a really complicated character, um, and I I, uh, I think I appreciated more tonight watching it. Just like this, these really extreme ups and downs in his in his life, and um, just like. Understanding the complexity of his situation and uh and appreciating how hard that that is for for him. I don't know, I just No, one hundred percent. I agree that this character has more complexity than I probably gave it credit for. Yeah. Um because it's this almost gets treated now as kind of like a morality fable. Uh-huh. Um, and, and we kind of associate kind of simplicity and basic messages of good with those. Mm-hmm. But I think there's, there's definitely more going on here. Um, in some stories when we, you have the character who's always like doing good unto others, it's just presented as 
this is who that person is. This is easy for them to do because mm-hmm. they were taught as a young child that, you know, you do good, you know, the Horatio Alger type story of, you know, you do good and it's going to make the world a better place. Mm-hmm. And therefore it's no, never a question. And with George Bailey, you see he sacrifices and he has to choose to do the right thing. And it's not automatic. Mm-hmm. Um, for him to do the right thing, which I think is really interesting to see. And he often does it like begrudgingly or he does it and he feels terrible about it. And it's not like, Hey, I'm just going to do the right thing. Cause I'm a uh, Johnny square jaw and I always do the right thing. He's like, no, he, he hates, he hates doing the right thing, <laughs> but he consistently does it. And there are moments of like real darkness in him where, uh, when he, when he's with, um, like when he's with Mary and he's and he's like grabbing her and he's sh- he's shaking her and he's like right. So like, this is after angst inside of yeah. this guy. This isn't the first flirtatious walk with Mary. This is after he's been holding down the family business while his brother goes to college. And this is one of those times where he does the right thing, but he kind of has the expectation that it's going to come back for him in a certain way. You know that he's going to be paid back by his brother coming back mm-hmm. and taking over, and he'll go to college. And he's found out that his brother's now married and has another job lined up, and he knows the right thing to do is to let his brother pursue this new life branch you know this path in life that's open up to him but he doesn't want to but he does you know he does it but then there's this scene with mary where he reconnects with mary and he is he's not happy-go-lucky george from the first scene of him and mary together he treats her horribly yeah like that whole that whole thing he goes uh you know walks around the town for a while and then he has this interesting interaction with violet um where she's like tried to flirt with him and then he says let's you know let's go run up into the mountains and then she kind of f- freaks out and and all the townspeople laugh at him that's an odd moment when the townspeople laugh <laughs> yeah it's so weird <laughs> anyway that's kind of a, that's an interesting like weird moment in the film and then he goes to mary's house and he's just like he's really horrible to her he's a total jerk like yeah he's he's, he's acting like uh an angsty teenager that's somewhere they don't want to be yeah and he's, I mean, it's, she's, she's like so happy she's, to see him and she's trying so hard to, to please him and flirt with him and, and remind him of this, this really great night that they had had when they were dancing, you know, several, a few years earlier. And he's just horrible to her. Like he's so mean to her. And then, and, and then they kind of violently a- kiss. <laughs> I think one of the one of the one of the scenes where I thought ah, they're both like really good is when um, I like their acting is when they are when they're talking on the phone to Sam and they're kind of talking and then he's he's like looking at her and and they're trying to he's trying to hold this conversation but he can't stop looking at her and you can tell that like he's just got there's a lot going on inside of him. Uh, all the frustration with his brother and now, you know, the possibility of a job, but it's not really the job that he wanted. And then here's this girl who he really likes, but represents, uh, like a life that he doesn't settling want. Settling into Bedford Falls. That's what, yeah. You know, yes. She represents settling for the life he's in and he's always dreamed of bigger and greater roles for himself in the world. Right. Like marriage is good for Sam and Marty and, and uh, Harry and everybody else, but not for me. Like I want to you know, shake the dust of this tiny little town off my feet and I want to see the world. And he just, uh, anyway, I, I, I thought I felt so sick inside for her. Okay, a couple of things. That scene is specifically the one that's mentioned in the documentary of Jimmy Stewart being nervous about doing it because he felt he was rusty in acting. 
Yeah, and 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 to help give it more power, Frank Capra uh, changed the staging so that they were holding the phone together and had to be physically close to each uh-huh. other while while they were holding it. <laughs> I love it when he says he says, oh, "Why don't you go on the extension?" And she says, "Mother's on the extension," and she says, "I am not." <laughs> <laughs> I like that mom and that whole thing. Yeah. Um, and uh, one other note: uh, we've mentioned Mary a couple times, and I probably should have mentioned this earlier. Played by Donna Reed. Uh, who goes on to be a kind of powerful force uh, in Hollywood. She has her own TV show called The Donna Reed Show that she both stars in and produces with her husband, kind of like Desi Lou uh, Productions with mm-hmm. I Love Lucy. Um, so kind of a similar, uh, similar significant figure in uh, Hollywood and television history. And this was kind of her breakout role. And I love her in this film. And, and she, I think she's my favorite character in the film. More than more than uh, Bailey, more than uh, Jimmy Stewart. Uh, yeah, she doesn't have quite as much, um, I guess, complexity to her. Mm-hmm. Like she's always just good, <laughs> um, and she's incredibly hardworking. Like there's this montage of her working all day to fix up this rundown house that they've bought and are trying to move into. And then like at night she's raising all the funds for the war effort, <laughs> you know, nonstop, uh, good work engine. And so I think there's less nuance than what we see with George Bailey, but she is a great character. And I think Donna Reed does a really good job with what she's given to work with. Here's the thing that, that is, is amazing to me about her is we've talked about this before, like the, this fine line between wishing your life were better and recognizing like what really is attainable. And it goes back for me to the scene when they're throwing their, when they're throwing the rocks in the, into the old house. So, so there's this old house and they're together. They've just fallen into the pool and gotten out. And now they're like totally in love and young. And George is just f- totally starry eyed and, and dreaming about the future and they're in front of this old house, and he says, you know, if you throw a rock and break some glass, then uh, then your wish will come true. You make a wish. And so he throws it, and she says, what do you wish for? And he says, not one wish, a thousand wishes. And, and this is where he tells her all of his dreams to leave Bedford Falls and, and travel the world and see all these cities and build great bridges and, and uh, skyscrapers. And then now this is where he says he'll, he'll like, give her the moon, right? Uh-huh. And then, yeah. and then, uh, and then he, he says, what do you want? And she says, I want the moon. And he says, I'll lasso it and bring it down. And and then you can swallow it and it'll dissolve and come out your fingers. I'm like, man, this guy's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but then, he, then she decides to make a wish and she chucks a rock and breaks the glass and her wish then uh, on their honeymoon night, they're, they're having their honeymoon. It's totally rainy and like the, they're in this house and it's totally falling apart, but they're inside of that house. And she says, remember that night when we were, when we threw the rocks into this, this is what I wished for. And it's like, she got it, you know, yeah. like her, she, she wished for something that in that moment, I think a lot of people would have said, that's crazy, you know? And, and yet it happened like in <laughs> George, George's dreams never did come true. And he was frustrated. He spent most of his life frustrated and she spent most of her life really happy that she was making her dreams come true. And she worked really hard to do it. And I think that's admirable. Yeah. Completely agree. Uh, one other, <laughs> I was going to share this trivia, but uh, on that documentary, it mentioned that uh, Frank Capra, assuming she wouldn't be able to throw, had hired some people to come in and throw the rocks for her. 
and, and said uh she watched them do it and said basically you guys are terrible and she did it way better than anyone else on set as far as being able to throw the rocks to hit windows yeah and it looked like i was watching that scene and it looks like they actually threw yeah. the rock and hit the glass yeah i think they were planning on doing it with some editing both uh, of them yeah and but she was able to do it yeah <laughs> well done donna reed I just, I think she's really, I really like her. You're swaying me on her. Yeah. I think she's great. She's the one that when they're in the, when they're in the bank and they're, or in the building and loan and, the, and uh-huh. every, there's, there's the, the run, run on the bank mm-hmm. and she yeah. says, how much do you need? And she gives up all of her money to, to make it happen. Okay. I kind of skipped over this plot point in the summary. Uh, it's right. It's on their wedding day. They are leaving town and they find out there's a run on the banks where people are trying to get all their cash out of the banks. And if the banks don't have any cash, they, they collapse. And this includes the family building a loan. And so George Bailey's in there trying to convince people, like, just trust us. You know, just leave your money here. It will still be here. Uh, but, like, one person is saying, I want my $240 out. You know, give it to me now, uh, or I'm going to go sell my bonds to, to Mr. Potter um, for, for less money, but at least he'll give me actual cash. Mm-hmm. And so George is like, Fraser doesn't know what to do. And she says, here's our honeymoon money. Like, she had $2,000 in cash for a big trip to go to Europe like he's always dreamed of, to go to New York like he's always dreamed of. And they start to use that cash to, you know, cover the requests from the people coming in. Um, so she does that moment. And also at the end of the film, when all the townspeople come and help George, it's because she's worried uh-huh. about him, has gone out looking for him, but is also telling everyone, you know what? We really do need help now. <laughs> and she's like, she solves the problem. Yes. She is the solution. It's not. Clarence the Angel, um, like like Clarence the Angel solves the Clarence's uh, solution is for George to go to jail for the rest of his <laughs> yes. life. Yes, he solves the abstract metaphysical problem of George questioning whether his life has been worth living, uh, and Mary solves the actual real. You know, we have a problem. We have this gap in our funds because, and I love how no one mentions that it's the crazy uncle <laughs> that lost this. <laughs> Like it's always yeah. just assumed it's gonna be George that takes the fall for this. Uh, well, but, but, but that's who George is, right? When he's with yeah. Potter and and he says, "I've lost eight thousand dollars," and Potter knows that it was Uncle Billy who lost it, and he says, "You've lost eight thousand dollars," and George says, "Yeah, I lost eight thousand dollars." Like, there's no way because of because of who he is, and he's he's mm-hmm. the one who's always saving people. There's no way he lets Uncle Billy go to jail for this, even though he says, "I'm not going to jail. You're going to jail." Yeah, um, but yeah, Mary's the one that actually gets out there and does the work to solve both those problems. And also, like I said, she's the one that fixes up their house. So they buy this completely run down, broken down mansion that's been rotting. Uh, and there's this montage showing her doing the wallpaper, painting the walls. You know, she's the one that fixes it all. It's kind of, so it reminds all right, so me I, of I'm, our, I'm being turned around on Mary completely. Yeah, it You're, reminds me of our discussion me. of Rudy. When we said like, if Rudy's dream had been to start for the university of Notre Dame, it would have been a disaster, but he knew exactly what he was capable of, like at the furthest limits of his of effort, right? So if mm-hmm. I work as hard as I possibly can, I know I'll never start, but I know that I can play. And nobody believes him that it's possible, but he believes that it's possible, and he works really, 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 really hard, and he's able to achieve that thing that's just at the limits of what he's capable of, where if, if his dream had been you know, one step further, he would have been a failure. And I, I just admire people so much. I think it's a real sign of wisdom in people to know what that like achievable dream is and then to go out and work really, really hard and get it. And that's uh, – it's the reason why I like Mary so much because I feel like she has really great vision. She's not like, well, I'm just going to – I'm just going to be a happy you know, lady and like whatever. Like she takes control of so many 
parts of her life and makes and turns it into the life that she wants. And um, it's not like she doesn't have dreams. She does. She just knows what what is what's really going to happen. And George never never seems to. Like, he's just not on the on the same page as like the universe. Right. So there's the the spectrum of where characters fall of like settling for less than what they'd be capable of, or um, striving for something that is truly unattainable, and therefore it's just going to be a life of frustration, or daydreaming of something that they'd like to obtain and not doing the work to do it. Mm-hmm. And you know, all of those are kind of disappointing characters. But like you're saying, that that Mary's hitting that sweet spot of striving for something more than what most people would probably settle for, but something that's not unattainable for her. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right. Now I like Mary a lot more. Okay. <laughs> Mission accomplished. So uh, Capra, Frank Capra, said that some of the, uh, the feedback that he got kind of continuously about this film throughout his life is people frustrated that Mr. Potter doesn't get any comeuppance for being a horrible human being. And I was just, so I just wondered what your thought was within this story and the character of Mr. Potter never really, you know, struggling <laughs> or, or uh, being punished for treating all of the common people poorly and then also deliberately trying to uh, illegally, you know, hold on to this money and destroy <laughs> his business rival. Uh, does that bother you in any way? No. Me neither. <laughs> but apparently a lot of people uh, kept writing Frank Capra about this. Really? And Yeah. Well, and also, an interesting note, uh, a, a number of lines uh, for, had to be changed because of the Hayes Code that was uh, mandated um, moral standards for Hollywood mm-hmm. uh, when this film was being produced. So there was a line where someone was called a jerk, and that was cut. <laughs> you really? Call a jerk, yeah. Uh, and there were... Because uh, I thought there were some pretty... St- when, I mean, it's yes, strong language, but when, yes, he's, when she, he's yelling at the teacher... Yes, she yells at the teacher, uh, and also uh, when he's going out for the night, and he says something like, I'm going to go look for some heavy necking. Yes. <laughs> and Mary yells up to her mom. He's she, making uh, violent love to her mother. He's making, <laughs> yes. She, his, her, her mom yells from upstairs, like, what is George Bailey doing here? And her response is, he's making violent love to me, which are all <laughs> kind of feel like they'd be on the, over the edge of what the Hayes Code yeah. allows. Um, but it was mentioned specifically somehow that the skirted, um, one part of the Hayes Code was that, um, villains must always be punished and shown punished on film. Oh yeah. Okay. And Mr. Potter wasn't. And so it actually is kind of an outlier, but I don't mind it at all because, uh, Mr. Potter's role is, um, it doesn't require change for this story to matter <laughs> yeah. you know, for George Bailey's life uh, to be shown to have worth. It's not that his life has worth because Mr. Potter uh, gets punished in the end. It's that his life has worth because he's lived it and he's been a good guy. Yeah. It's you know, not, that's, it, it's not about re- balancing the scales of justice. That's yes. not what this film is about. Yeah. It's I, about the, the, the quiet significance of a moral life. I agree. 100%. It's a, uh... Yeah, but Mr. Potter, his presence, he serves a purpose in the film uh, to be sort of this foil. But in the end, it's uh, like it just he, he, I, he, he disappears because we recognize how insignificant he really is. And, uh, and of course, that's been contrasted with how significant George Bailey is, even though as far as 
like monetary stature or political clout within the community, you would say Mr. Potter is much more significant. But the whole end of this film, the entire message is 100% that this uh, small, quiet life by an individual who's tried to do good has huge ramifications. Um, not just, you know, in this real timeline, but imagine life without those kinds of people in yeah. it. Yeah. So here's my, here's my thought. It's time for a philosophy with Dr. Mac. Bring um, it. <laughs> so you mentioned earlier, trying to, I'm looking in my notes here where you wrote this. Uh, Capra's favorite film, encapsulating the themes he always wanted to highlight, the importance of the individual, everyone has a purpose. So I came across this, uh, this philosophy just this year. So I um, am in no, by no means an expert on this, um, but the, the philosophy comes from South Africa. It's called Ubuntu. Have you heard of this? I am unfamiliar. Okay, so Ubuntu. Please educate me. <laughs> Ubuntu is a South African Oh, wait. I've heard of that. Philosophy. Never mind. <laughs> it's also an operating system. Right, it's a it's a version of Linux operating system called Ubuntu, but uh, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the philosophy. I think I've heard of it, but never it, like taken time to it, understand it. It means like I am because we are. Yes. Okay. Okay. Producer Andrew's in on it. Okay, so Ubuntu uh, is because it was not. Um, this is not French philosophy, and it's not even like uh, really. It's not. It's not philosophy in the sense of like some philosopher sat down and wrote this thing. It's more of a like a moral code, or like a social contract. It's a way of li- It's a way of living. It's a way of seeing the world. Um, and and because it didn't come out of a book or uh, like a school of thought, uh, it's kind of hard to pin down exactly. But um, I have this quote from Desmond Tutu. So if you were to find a, if you wanted to find a book that talks about uh, Ubuntu in in a, a kind of a cohesive way. I think that book would be uh, this book by Desmond Tutu called No Future Without Forgiveness, in which he talks about his uh, his role. It's kind of a memoir of his role in, in the Truth and Reconciliation Committee in South Africa. Um, and so this is what he says: Ubuntu speaks of the very essence of being human. We say, "Hey, so and so has Ubuntu." Then you are generous, you are hospitable, you are friendly and caring and compassionate. You share what you have. It is to say, my humanity is caught up, is inextricably bound up in yours. We belong in a bundle of life. We say, a person is a person through other persons. A person with Ubuntu is open and available to others. Affirming of others does not feel threatened that others are able and good, for he or she has a proper self-assurance that comes from knowing that he or she belongs in a greater whole and is diminished when others are humiliated or diminished, when others are tortured or oppressed, or treated as if they are less than who they are. So this is the, the idea of Ubuntu. Uh, it, it gets, it gets uh, boiled down to or translated as, like Andrew said, I am because we are or I am because you are or I am only human uh, through your humanity. Uh, but, like, everybody's tied together. And I was thinking of how often we have discussed agency in on this podcast and how um, in, in our culture and in these kind of literary circles that we run in, uh, agency is, is kind of a it's, a... it's a metric uh, that we use for characters, to say this is a great character. This is this is a this is a well like a realized character, a fully developed character, is somebody who has agency and and they're a strong individual and they make changes, they make decisions that you know change the course of their their uh, the story. Um, Ubuntu says something different, I think, 
about the value of a character in that you're able to measure the value of a character or or a character's um, success as a character, not by their individuality, but by how well connected they are with their community. Does that make Does that make sense at all? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, we've we've talked about like the Western, the, the iconic American Western hero is not a part of the community. Right. <laughs> you know, they they live on the fringe. Uh, they may come in and protect the community, but they are never going to become interconnected within that community. Mm-hmm. And this is saying the the real heroes are those that are so interwoven that their well being and the community's well being are inextricable. Yeah. So when so when we look at this and we say. Uh, Capris, this is this big celebration of like American individualism. I don't, I don't know how much I buy that unless, uh, it's, it's this like tricky balance thing. Well, or where... is this, I don't know if he's talking about individuality as far as, uh, like identification of self and your own significance uh-huh. as much as saying that every single person matters. matters. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that I, I totally get. And just the end of this film, when all these people walk into George Bailey's house and they say, I wouldn't have a, wouldn't have a roof if it wasn't for you, and you saved my life, and um, they just, they're all, it's, everyone's so, the whole community is so interwoven, and the only one, the, the person who's not there, the big, the big absent figure, is Potter, and, and I, I don't know exactly what to make of that, except... Because he's also part of George Bailey's life, like he's part of that community, and and and, and part of what makes it what it is. It would be interesting to see like uh, Potter's, you know, like Clarence do the whole the, the voodoo thing with uh, with Potter, and see what the world would be like without him. <laughs> it might be just as dark. I don't know. I I'm just gonna go out on a limb and guess that there's been a book published. <laughs> where someone explores that very uh world it actually uh kind of reminds me of um there there's a british uh sitcom that was called black adder with mm-hmm. rowan atkinson yeah mr bean uh before he was mr bean uh and they did a christmas special in which uh a ghost uh <laughs> like uh, it, i mean this is more of a christmas carol but a ghost of uh, it's one one ghost that does christmas past future and or present and future but um black hatter's character is like really good like he's he's charitable he's he cares about everyone but when he sees his future the ghost is kind of like yeah you know what I, I messed up coming to see you i was supposed to go see someone else but we're here why don't we go see the future uh and he finds out that in the future, he's like uh, the lowest of the lower class slave, uh, and he's like, he's like, well, can you show me what the future would be like if I was mean? And and the spirit's like, no, no, we can't do that. But uh, then they manage to see it. And he finds out his 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 descendants are like the emperors of the entire galaxy <laughs> if he's mean. So now he becomes a Scrooge like figure instead of say, staying a nice figure. <laughs> There, there, um, there is a lot of Christmas Carol in this. Uh, in oh this yeah, film. the scene where. Uh, George Bailey in the alternate reality is um, scrubbing away the snow from a from a gravestone, mm-hmm. and he finds out it's his brother's gravestone. Yeah. But that very much uh, evoked a Christmas Carol to me. Yeah, the, it's the it, the other. Th- so here's the other thing that's amazing to me about this film. So you think about Christmas Carol, you get um, you get just a, a little bit of setup, and you see Scrooge being Scrooge for about five pages <laughs> and yes. then Marley's ghost comes. And then the whole rest of the film is about the trend, the transition, right? It's about, 
him becoming Happy Scrooge. Um, this film is like the longest setup ever, and it's kind of oh a long yes, film, I meant right? to talk about this. It's over two hours long, and every other like version of like where people do homages or you know there's like we said there's the Muppet version, the Tiny Toons version. I'm sure there are many many others. It, it they just almost instantly leap into the alternate world uh-huh. where this character never lived because it's so interesting. Yes, and this is like two hours of George Bailey's life, and then ten minutes of the alternate world, and then five minutes back in, and everything gets fixed. Uh, so I sat down <laughs> with my kids to watch this tonight, and and they're like, "Is this a Christmas movie? We want to watch the Santa Claus." <laughs> and I said, "No, we'll watch that a different night." But this is this is like the Christmas movie. It's it's the best Christmas movie ever. And Except for White Christmas, uh, um, <laughs> <laughs> just just have to get it in there. <laughs> You're gonna get two to one on that. <laughs> no. Uh, I, I I think there's an argument to be made. I love White Christmas. Um, but so they sit down and they're like, Dad, are you sure this is a Christmas movie? <laughs> because it's just this long story of this guy's life. And he's an interesting guy and he's he's a complex guy. And there's all kinds of amazing – I just – every scene, like every set piece is I, – I love it. I love the, the, the honeymoon scene and the run on the bank scene. And the the dance scene and that post dance scene, like it, it, I love the way that they tell the the story of this guy's life, but it goes on for a very long time. And then the the thing that everybody knows this film for, it comes at the very 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 end. It lasts a very short time, and then it, ends. it really is about ten minutes. I think. Yeah, it's yeah. about ten minutes in a two hour and fifteen minute film. And I just wonder if if anybody could get away with with like a remake of this film. Uh, as it with the same kind of pacing and structure as it as it ha- as as it has. Oh, I, 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 they, I they don't remake think that film so. Today. And I, I, I mean, so there's. Um, oh, I, I'm forgetting who said this. It was an architect. Uh, my sister sent me this quote where the architect said, "The Parthenon is the perfect building." but no one should try to rebuild the Parthenon because it was perfect because of when it was built uh-huh. and everything that was going on and, you know, the where architecture was at that moment, uh, that it's perfect for that moment. And to recreate it now would be an anachronism. Like, it wouldn't work. Uh-huh. And I feel the same way about, like, saying, you know, remake it with the same pacing. Like, our pacing is so different uh, and our expectations for, for film and how story gets laid out have changed over, you know, the... 70 years since this came uh-huh. out. Um, so anyway, like when you go watch, we, we did the Mary Tyler Moore show and we talked about how it just had an A plot and that was it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that that's weird to a modern art- audience because sitcoms today have moved not only to having B plots, but now we've moved to, uh, really heavily into single camera instead of, you know, the, the classic three camera sitcom mm-hmm. and all these other things. And it doesn't mean Mary Tyler Moore show is better than what we have now. It means it was one of the perfect shows for that moment when it was right. made. But if you try to transplant it exactly as it was into today, it doesn't work. Because it's perfect for when it was made. Okay. So my answer would be, no, we could not have the same pacing happen <laughs> today. To get back to your original question. I just, I, I, I found the structure really, really interesting. And um, there are films, we've talked about, we talked about this with Elf, right? Where like the setup is so good and then the payoff is so bad. Right, and you're just like, well, let's just uh, let's just pretend that. But you forgive last. it because you're still entertained by the setup. Yeah, and this film is like, like a complete flip of that, where the set, like the earliest, the earliest stuff, you know, the you forget about, you, you forget. totally forget about it. Yeah, 
and you only think about the setup. Like that's our cultural idea, or I mean, is is the, the, payoff. the payoff? Yeah. Our cultural idea of this is when people talk about it's a wonderful life. It's really the last ten minutes of the film. It's about Clarence, about. and it's about. Uh, running through the streets. I, th- I think the cinematography is beautiful when he's running. When he's oh, both so the, when he's running scared and, and confused, but also when he's running happily mm-hmm. after. Oh, really well done. Though I do need to say, uh, I it's always makes me chuckle when uh, he's acting a little odd, and all of a sudden, uh, you know, he runs into the cop, and he kind of knocks the cop down, and he gets up and runs away, and the cop says, "Everybody out of the way!" and oh, he just I starts firing at him. <laughs> <laughs> Which is one of my favorite random firings by a cop into, into a crowded street. Yeah, it's uh, really there's, great. There's a Hitchcock film called Strangers on a Train, which <laughs> I like even better. I'm pretty sure it's Strangers on a Train. I might have it wrong. But the cop fires into a moving merry-go-round with children. Oh, because <laughs> the guy that he's pursuing ran onto the merry-go-round, and the cop just starts firing into this merry-go-round. <laughs> <laughs> Both of these instances like completely pull me out of the film because I'm like, oh no, cops! Don't don't just randomly fire into crowds. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. And really, anybody in your life who's named Mary just gets called Mary. Like, <laughs> Mary, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas! You old building alone. <laughs> That's fine. I love it. <laughs> Hello, Bedford Falls. <laughs> Love it, love it, love it, love it. <clears throat> Sorry, audience, you will not be receiving my Jimmy Stewart impersonation tonight. <laughs> maybe, maybe in a future episode if we revisit Jimmy. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I, that's the only Jimmy Stewart I can do. The for some reason it's that line of uh, about the the building of loans. Merry Christmas, you. I'm not doing it. For your building loans. Merry Christmas Emporium. <laughs> Merry Christmas, you all building alone. <laughs> That's that's the line that sticks out for uh, trying to pull out a Jimmy Stewart impersonation. I always think that he says "Merry Christmas, Bedford Falls," but he actually never says that. He says "Hello, Bedford Falls." <clears throat> anyway, it's fantastic. <laughs> Go watch it. Any uh, on that note, any final thoughts, Todd? <laughs> Every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. I uh, uh, just but did Clarence as- really? Did Clarence really earn his wings? <laughs> <laughs> just putting that out there. <laughs> it was Jimmy, Jimmy Stewart's idea, or, or George Bailey's idea. Oh, if only I'd never been born. And Claire's like, nah, we could go with that. <laughs> like, he had no plan on how to help him. <laughs> what do you think of Clarence? I love the actor. Like, he's got this weird charm about him. I think he's hilarious. Yeah, he he's great. Um, but, <laughs> Mold uh, wine! Now, <laughs> and, if you were writing this today... Would you have Clarence be obsessed with Tom Sawyer or maybe something a little more thematically topical to the story that's being told? Well, what do you think about that? I think he's doing Tom Sawyer mostly to establish that Clarence is old. Okay. Because <laughs> uh, he makes the reference, like, have you heard about Mark Twain's new one that's coming out yeah. after Tom Sawyer? <laughs> so I think they're really just trying to say Clarence died, you know, 100 years ago. <laughs> okay. Because um, I don't see a whole lot of them- thematic connection between Tom Sawyer and It's a Wonderful Life. I mean, Tom Sawyer kind of has a transformation, but it's not the sort of transformation that George Bailey's mm-hmm. having. Yeah, I had a hard time connecting those two. If any any of you listeners out there, if you can draw the connection between Tom Sawyer and It's a Wonderful Life, uh, we'd be much obliged. I love it when literature makes, or film or television makes references to other existing works, uh-huh. and you see the, the thematic connections. Yes. Like, Lost did this really well. I was just going to say that. <laughs> I loved Lost for all the references, and yeah. I know people are frustrated with the finale of Lost. I don't care. I loved that show. Yeah. And I loved, like, thinking about when 
uh, Desmond says, oh, it's behind the turn of the screw on the bookshelf. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, go pull out the turn of the screw. Uh, and what that means for, uh, you know, what's happening in that uh, novel versus, or novella, I guess, but versus what's happening to these characters right now. And yeah. you're like, oh, okay, I see some of the connections yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, going on there. But I just can't find it for Tom Sawyer. Yeah, I think you're right. I have a hard time. I have a hard time with that, too. But despite that, listeners, again, great film. You should all go I watch love it. Clarence. I think the the scene in the in the boat in the like the boathouse or the bridge house where where the the guard house and he's talking about his old underwear. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's got a lot of charm. I like yes. that actor. He does. Uh and a lot of lines that actually I think would be hard to deliver in a way that wouldn't want you to just outright dismiss this person, but he manages to deliver them yeah. pretty darn well. Yeah, he does a, he does a great job. All great right, film. well, listeners. I was oh. I wanted to say one other thing. Um, just, uh, and again, I don't know, I don't know if this is, if it's Jimmy Stewart's acting or if it's, I don't know what it is exactly, but when he's in that, um, when he's in that bar and he's kind of at the end of his rope and he says, I'm at the end of my rope, that prayer that he says, he says, Heavenly Father. I am at the end of my rope. I just don't know what to do. He says like, I'm not a praying man. I'm not a praying man, but I could really use some help right now. I'm at the end of my rope. I just, I just don't know what to do. Um, there's just a lot of, I don't know. I, I like the way that the, the, those lines are delivered. Um, it's also really good cinematography. Yeah. It's a great scene. It's and, framed really well. And to, just to, to tie it back to those, the very, like we said, we said earlier, it's easy to forget the beginning of this film. And I forget that the beginning of this film is the snowy streets of Bedford Falls and all of these people praying for George Bailey. Please, you know, bless my, bless my friend George. And, and then the little girl, bless my daddy. And, um, which by the way, it's, so so manipulative but it's kind of like the first uh five minutes of up like i choke up when the little child's voice uh-huh. goes bless bless my daddy yeah <laughs> but it's it's beautiful and i just i don't know like we i don't know as a believer i it it like touches my soul in really uh powerful ways and i i'm sure that it's one of the reasons that i love this film so much um, but I just, I think it's well done. Um, I don't think that you have to be like a church going, you know, <laughs> person to like really enjoy this film, but it's nice to see a film that's like really well done. Um, that just, uh, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I've, yeah, I felt well, really I mean, touched by it. A lot of Christmas films go with the generic kind of Christmas spirit, like elf. Yeah. It's ambiguous as to what that really means. Uh, but like this, uh, clearly there's a God and angels. <laughs> you know, it might not be angels and that whose actions align with any particular <laughs> religious uh, belief system, but clearly there's, uh, it's a Christmas film that's dealing on some level with God, um, which often kind of gets um, avoided, which I'm not saying like, oh, every Christmas film must be overtly religious, no. but a lot of them just kind of gloss over that, but like this and a Charlie Brown Christmas are some of the only ones I can think of that really for mass appeal at the Christmas season explicitly bring in the religious aspect. Yeah. And again, I'm not trying to be militant in any way and say, Oh, there's a war against Christmas. Cause I think that's kind of a ridiculous argument yeah. to be making when the entire nation stops to celebrate it. <laughs> um, but it's, uh, interesting to see it dealt with in a more explicit manner. 
Yeah, and it's it doesn't feel like like knock you over the head, uh, like you said, like militant. It just feels sincere, and and those the opening scene feels sincere to me. The scene in the bar feels sincere to me, um, and I, I just feel like it's it's so well done. Um, there's a it, there's a reason why it's it's the most inspirational film of all time, and the you know there's a different version of this film that is militant and. Um, you know, it wouldn't, <laughs> I, I don't know, just uh, there's something really appealing in the way that it's done. It's, I think it's like super tasteful and, um, uh, but sincere. All right. Well, I absolutely agree, Todd. And I think that basically wraps up this episode. So thank you listeners for joining us and please subscribe to the protagonist podcast in iTunes and please leave us a review there and links to the things that we've talked about in this episode are at protagonistpodcast.com. That's also where you can find a list of all of our previous shows, which is an ever increasing back catalog. And you can suggest future stories or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. And we're all on Twitter at protagonist pod at todd k mac at jay dorowski and our producer andrew is at andrew underscore dorowski and our facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonist podcast and please go there for any discussion uh, or to interact with uh, other posts that come up after we we uh, post the links to our episodes and if you want to buy a topic for us to discuss or just support us with a small financial donation you can click on the support link on our homepage or go to patreon.com slash protagonist thank you again for listening and we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. So long. <laughs> Harvey is a different Jimmy Stewart film. <laughs> His brother... <laughs> His brother... This took us in a totally different direction. <laughs> yes. Brother Harvey is a giant pink bunny. <laughs> A puka. <laughs> uh, all right. I'm going to leave a break for Andrew to cut all that because that will confuse people. Is Harvey the Bunny really a puka? Yeah. yeah. Oh. But, okay, we no one is going to understand this discussion right now, so I really think this needs to get cut. So I'm just going to give a break, and I will start over. With it. <laughs> <laughs> His, there was just a whole lore podcast about pukas. That's, why I'm say, that's what I'm saying. Okay. Go ahead.